Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. And as we continue in worship, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. John chapter 5, the focus, uh, our text that we'll focus on this morning is going to be verses 17 through 21, but let us read from verse 16 for context of the situation that we again come to this morning in John 5. So let's begin John chapter 5, verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Amen. Let's pray. Let's unite our hearts and seek God's help as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your blessed Word. The Word that reveals to us the true and the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we come this morning, Father, to one of the Mount Everest of John's Gospel and considering the equality of of the Lord Jesus Christ with You, Father. Equality in essence and glory and attributes. We pray that You would cause us to behold our God. Give us humble hearts as we approach the mysteries of the relationship of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We pray that You would remind us that we are but creatures. You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word, and so we must venture to understand Your Word. And yet, Lord, cause us to always confess that though we will never completely comprehend these things, yet we worship our God for who You are. So, Father, we pray that You would come, that You would send Your Spirit to be our teacher. We pray that You would enlighten our minds that You would warm our hearts as we think about the relationship of the Trinity and that the Lord Jesus Christ condescended to become man for us that He might raise us to the heights of His heavenly glory. Father, cause us to be a thankful people, to be filled with humility and joy that such a glorious God, our Lord Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us for our sakes to bear in His sinless body our sins that He might rise from the dead and in His rising we might raise with Him on the last day glorious, victorious over sin through Him and heirs of eternal life. Father, work in the hearts of any who are here who don't have a saving knowledge of Christ and are not depending on Christ to save them. We ask, Father, open their eyes, open their hearts, cause their hearts to be warmed by the beauty of the Gospel, the humiliation of Christ for His people. We ask that You would be with us in these next minutes. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we come this morning again to chapter 5. We've considered the miracle. We've considered the conflict that flowed from that miracle. And now this morning we embark 
on what we might call the, our Lord on trial. Not his final trial, but a trial here that has been occasioned by his healing of this man on the Sabbath. And subsequently, after the man is healed, Jesus commanding him to take up his bed and walk. And that, as we've already seen, has brought down the fury of the Jews. Verse 16 is where we began reading. Just to remind us, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, while John, the Gospel writer, doesn't explicitly record for us them putting a charge to him and calling him to give a a defense, it's clear from the following discourse that Jesus gives that that is exactly what is going on here. And so we begin this morning by considering this discourse where Jesus answers their charge, defending why it is right for him to work on the Sabbath, and then at the end of the discourse, that is why he presents to them four testimonies which testify to his identity. And we'll get there, Lord willing, over the next uh, couple or several weeks. And so let's begin our exposition, and then we'll turn to our doctrine and then our application. But let's begin with exposition. And it's especially at this point, if you have a Bible, that I encourage you to have it open so that you can see the text for yourself and read God's Word and understand what it is He's saying to us. And so our exposition, beginning in in verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my Father has been working until now and I have been working. Or probably better translated, my Father is working until now and I am working. Now, that, we have to recognize that defense that Jesus gives for why it's okay for Him to work on the Sabbath is an astonishing defense. Okay? For instance, I'll put it in context. Elsewhere in the Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels, when the Jews demand an explanation from Jesus for why He works on the Sabbath, Usually in the other Gospels, Jesus takes the route of simply correcting their wrong understanding or application of the Sabbath law. Okay, so for instance, Matthew 12.5, He tells them when they say, you know, your disciples can't pick grain on the Sabbath, that's breaking the Sabbath. He tells them, do you not remember from the law that even on the Sabbath, the priests are at their priestly work and yet they are guiltless? Or Luke 14, verse 5, he points out their own inconsistency and he says, which of you, because they're criticizing him for healing on the Sabbath, and he says, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath will not immediately pull him out? And so in both of those, he's essentially answering their charge by saying, your guy's understanding of what is allowed and what is not allowed on the Sabbath is fundamentally flawed. Now here's the thing. Those responses that Jesus gives elsewhere do not invoke the same rage as this response because those responses, in one sense, are responses that any Bible-believing Jew could have given and explained to them, you're not understanding and applying the Sabbath correctly. But the defense Jesus gives here in John goes far beyond what any ordinary Jew would dare say. Remember, John's Gospel is the one that highlights not so much the humanity of Christ, though that is obviously there, but John's Gospel is the one that highlights the the heavenly origin of the Son of God. And Jesus here tells them that His working on the Sabbath is right not simply by proving that His work is lawful, but by declaring to them that because my Father works on the Sabbath, I too must work on the Sabbath. He's taking to Himself divine prerogatives. And by the way, the way He says my Father indicated to these Jews, according to verse 18, that He is claiming a unique relationship to the Father calling God His own Father. The Jews would sometimes refer to God corporately as the Father of the Jews, but Jesus here is claiming a unique sonship, a sonship so close to the Father that He works not only because the Father works, but He works with the Father. 
Now, as I'm sure you understand, Jesus is really poking the bear here with that response. And he's doing it on purpose. And his defense now becomes his greatest offense to them. Verse 18. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay. Pretty plain text, right? And yet, Satan is never without his devices to twist the plain assertions of Scripture. For instance, there are some, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses would be an example of this, who interpret, and you can actually read their comment on the New World Translation on verse 18 here. They interpret verse 18 this way. They say, this isn't John's interpretation of what Jesus meant. John didn't mean that Jesus actually was making Himself equal with God. This is simply John recording the Jews' mistaken interpretation of what Jesus was saying. And so they argue that just as the Jews wrongly accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, so they wrongly accused Him here of making Himself equal with the Father. That doesn't work for several reasons. And I'm going to give you three, okay? Number one... Because notice, verse 18 is John's commentary, not a quotation of the Jews' interpretation. If, If John was simply recording what the Jews took Jesus to mean, and John knew that that was incorrect, he very easily could have indicated that. Reason number two, related to the first. And this one's significant. Number two, there are other places in the Gospel of John where Jesus' audience actually does legitimately misunderstand what He means. For instance, remember chapter 2 when they think that Jesus is talking about destroying the physical temple and rebuilding it in three days. And you remember John purposefully, parenthetically notes He corrects that misunderstanding and tells his readers, no, Jesus was talking about the temple of His body. And so, if this were merely a misunderstanding on the Jews' part, and Jesus wasn't really claiming equality with God, then why doesn't John here give a similar parenthetical note so that his readers don't also misunderstand? John gives no indication here that they were incorrect in their interpretation. And finally, reason number three. If Jesus didn't mean to indicate that He was equal with the Father, and if He actually wanted to try to correct that misunderstanding, it's a very strange way to go about that by Him going on to say things like He says, for instance, in verses 22 and 23. If you look at verse 22. Where He says, For the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son so that what? All should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Christian, the following discourse that we're going to consider over the next couple or few weeks affirms and supports the assertion that Jesus is equal with God. It does not deny it. And in fact, the whole discourse following is an expansion of that idea that Jesus is equal with God. And so, as I said, his defense here becomes his greatest offense to them because at first he was merely on trial for being a Sabbath breaker. Now he's on trial for, in their mind, being a blasphemer. And so verse 19. Verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself but what He sees the Father do. Okay, now let me say this as we embark on this discourse. We are entering here one of the Mount Everest of John's Gospel. Jesus here and John recording Him is, as it were, giving us a view behind the curtain into the relationship of the Father and the Son. John has already alluded to this mystery earlier, earlier in the Gospel that we've, where we've seen things like this. But here Jesus expounds on the mystery. And it's in places like this that we especially have to tread carefully and thoughtfully. Verse 19, 
was one of the most oft-cited texts by Arius and the Arians in the early church to argue for the lesser godness of the Son. You might be familiar with the Arian controversy. Um, they, they argued that the Son is God in a sense, but in a different sense than the Father is God. So they said the Son is like the Father, but He is not essentially one and equal with God the Father. And they cite often this text and say, see, the Son here clearly expresses some sort of inferiority to the Father. After all, out of His own lips, He admits that the Son can do nothing of Himself. Okay, pause for a second. Let's remember that we are in the Gospel that literally opened up the very first words. Within the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He went on in chapter 1, verse 5 to tell us that all things were made through the Son and apart from the Son, nothing has been made that was made. Verse 14 and 18 of chapter 5 Jesus is the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father who comes to reveal the Father. Chapter 5, He's just declared that He is a co-equal and a co-worker with the Father in the divine work. And I remind you of that to say, we can't just get rid of all that and interpret one text in a way that just deletes that and ignores that as though that's not also in the Gospel. So, what do these words, the Son can do nothing of Himself, mean? Well, as Ambrose, an early church father, said, he said, blessed be the foreknowledge of God who foresaw those that would twist the Scriptures and therefore God gave us the rest of the verse. (laughs) I think the key to understanding this is told to us in the last part of this verse. So let's start there and we'll come back to the beginning of verse 19. Jesus says, For whatever He, the Father, does, the Son also does in like manner. So think with me. Let's take Jesus' statement at face value. According to that statement, at the end of verse 19, what things does the Son do? He does whatever the Father does, right? And not only does He do whatever the Father does, He does it in like manner. Now we could pause there and ask the question, what creature can say that? But think about that. Whatever things the Father does, literally it's plural in Greek, whatever things the Father does, the Son does likewise. So whatever the Father creates, the Son creates. We saw that in chapter 1. Nothing was made apart from what was made by the Father through the Son. Whatever the Father heals, the Son heals. If you look at verse 20, which we'll consider, this miracle in which He's just healed this man who's sick for 38 years is the work of the Father given to the Son. Whoever the Son raises, or excuse me, whoever the Father raises to life, the Son raises to life. That's what Jesus says in verse 21. Just as the Father raises the dead, so the Son has life to give life to whom He wills. This is why you see, I've I've mentioned this, but it's been months. I think it was when we were in chapter 1. This is why you see, for instance, creation in one passage of Scripture ascribed to the Father. And then in another passage, like Colossians, you see creation ascribed entirely to the Son. Or for instance, this is why Jesus attributes it to the care of the Father to clothe the lilies and take care of creation. But then in Hebrews chapter 1, it's the Son who upholds the universe by the Word of His power. The point of those texts and how we put them together is that the Father does nothing apart from the Son and the Son can do nothing apart from the Father. And in in good Trinitarian theology, we call that the inseparable operations of the Trinity. Because God is one, 
His works are one, and therefore everything the one God does are the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Flowing from the Father through the Son and perfected by the Spirit. In other words, there are no Lone Ranger persons of the Trinity working apart from one another. If you had that, you're, you're encroaching very closely upon tritheism rather than Trinitarian theology of one God eternally existing as in three persons. And so let's return to the beginning of verse 19. When Jesus says the Son can do nothing of Himself but what He sees the Father do, He's not confessing some sort of inferiority to the Father. Rather, He's declaring the absolute unity that He has with the Father. My Father is working until now and I am working. And He'll say later, I and the Father are one. This is not the confession of weakness or a diminishment or anything like that. This is a perfection. This is equality with God. The Son does whatever the Father does and He cannot do otherwise. Let me put it this way. When we see things in Scripture like, for instance, the fact that Paul says, God who cannot lie. Do we understand that to be a confession of weakness in God? Right? Do we say to ourselves, oh man, what a bummer, there are things that God cannot do. No, we, see, we say that's a perfection, right? Because He is truth such that He cannot lie. So also, in that same way, it's a perfection that the Son can do nothing of Himself apart from the Father. The Son cannot act independently of the Father because He is one in will with the Father. And so verse 20, for the Father loves the Son. Again, that unique relationship that Jesus has to the Father. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does. Okay, And again, the emphasis here is not on Inferiority, it's on equality. Right? The Father shows the Son how many things? All things that the Father does. Okay? And we, know, we ought not to, by the way, import, to that, in, import into that phrase, shows the Son. We ought not import into that creaturely ideas like the way a human father teaches a son. And the son over time learns from a father. This is simply an expression that there's nothing that the Father keeps from the Son. There is nothing the Father knows or does that He does not share with the Son. And again, that is something that no finite creature could ever say. You remember Job, when he says after God has revealed His glory and He's called... Job, as it were, to give an account of where were you when I laid the foundations of the world. And Job says, even in light of all the great knowledge of God that God had imparted to Job, he said, but even still, I only know the outskirts of God's ways. That's our creaturely knowledge of God and what He does. Even if we, the greatest theologian knows but the outskirts of God's ways. The angels, the holy angels, have things that they long to look into and yet they do not know them. And yet, of the Son here, He knows all that the Father does. Because He is of the same mind with the Father. He is equal with God because if He were not, He could not comprehend God. Moving on. Last part of verse 20. And He, the Father, will show Him, the Son, greater works than these that you may marvel. That is, greater works than this healing of this man at the pool of of Bethesda. And notice, I already pointed out that according to Jesus, the works the Son performs in His incarnation are the works that the Father shows Him or gives Him. Again, the unity of working with the Father. And in particular, verse 21, we're told the first of what one of those greater works will be. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, 
Even so, the Son gives life to whom He will. So, they are scandalized by this, 38, this healing of a 38-year-old or a 38-year-long sufferer. And Jesus tells them that they will be forced to marvel even if ever so unwillingly when the Son with the same power as the Father gives life to whom He will. And that statement on Him giving life to whom He wills, as we'll see as we move through this discourse, has a, has a twofold meaning. First, we shouldn't discount this, it does have reference to physical life. As we'll see chapter 11 with Lazarus, as we will see in His own resurrection from the dead, as we will see, as He will talk about on that great day of judgment, when all who are in the tombs hear the voice of the Son, and the billions of bodies are raised from the grave to be judged by Him. But He will also demonstrate His power in giving spiritual and eternal life to millions upon millions from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Now, with our exposition in front of us, understanding something of the sense of the text, I want to move into our doctrine and then we'll close with brief application. First of all, let's turn to our doctrinal section and here, I want, to, I want to focus on how does this text instruct us doctrinally? What things are contained in this passage that are key to connect to other passages in order to inform our doctrinal understanding of who God is and what He requires of us? And I have two things. And I know perhaps you're thinking, this is the doctrine section. I thought we, thought we already covered the doctrine in the exposition. Sometimes it's hard to, to separate them. Um, I have two things by way of doctrine that I want to open up. Number one, we are taught in this text the unambiguous deity of Christ. Okay? And I, I hope you know I can't preach on this text without having some point having to do with the deity of Christ. We are taught here unambiguously the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. From the lips of our Lord Himself, and from all of the pens of all of His apostles, we are presented in the Bible with a glorious Savior who is very God of very God, co-equal with the Father, come down for us and for our salvation. And that is foundational and at the very bedrock of biblical Orthodox Christianity. You don't have a Savior, you don't have a Gospel if you don't have the deity of Christ. You pull that out and everything else falls apart. And it never does the Christian any harm, but rather much good to think and to think often about the glorious person of the Savior. Truly human? Yes. And that is absolutely indispensable as well for the accomplishment of our redemption. But this humanity is none other than the humanity of the Son of God who has condescended to our lowly estate and has laid aside His reputation for us so that He might then raise us up to the heights of His heavenly glory. Praying as He does to His Father in John 17.24, Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am to see My glory. The Son of God has come with the same power as the Father to give life to whom He will that He might take us up into the glory and the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what I want to do this morning by way of doctrine and connecting this text to other texts is I want to just briefly furnish, Christian, your faith with three lines of articles of proof or lines of proof for the deep, why you should not only embrace, but savor the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Okay? Um, if, if you read any good systematic theology, they're going to open up eight, nine, or ten different lines of argument for why Jesus is co-equal with the Father. I'm going to give you three here. Okay? Number one, Jesus takes to Himself the divine name. I should say names. He takes to Himself the divine names. And this is just a smattering. 
Think about what kind of gymnastics you have to do if you read these titles being given to a mere creature, okay? He is called Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Isaiah prophesied of him that he would be called Mighty God and Emmanuel, which means God with us. Think about for a moment the greatest figures of the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, we read of uh, the giving of the law this morning. Moses who talked to God as a man speaks with his friend. And yet, think about how the Lord was not afraid for a moment or hesitant for a moment to put those great men as they were in their place and remind them that they are but creatures. None of them have titles anywhere close to these ascribed to them. And it is inconceivable that these titles would be bestowed upon any but God Himself without it being the committing of idolatry. Jesus says in John 8, we'll get here, Lord willing, in months. I don't know how many months, but it'll be months, I'm sure, because it won't be less than a month. Jesus says to the Jews at the end of John 8 that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. And they protest to Jesus and they say, you are not even yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham to which Christ responds to them, again, provocatively, just like here in John 5, He responds to them before Abraham was, and He doesn't say, I was. That would have been quite the assertion just by itself. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Taking to Himself the most sacred of divine names. The great I am who I am. The one who is and has always been and who always will be. You realize he's saying to them in John 8, I am the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Jude tells us that it was Jesus. We, we read about the deliverance of Israel this morning. And how God reminds them that it was the Lord who delivered you from your enemies. And Jude tells us Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. So that you rightly have Thomas, and this should be all of us, falling down on his knees after he beholds the resurrected Christ saying, my Lord and my God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And those titles would be blasphemous to apply to any mere creature. And the Father certainly would not allow it if the Son was not His co-equal. Secondly, in terms of the second sub-point on this uh, point, He performs the divine work. Not only does He take to Himself the divine names, He performs the divine work We read it in our text this morning. Whatsoever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And that's not limited to working on the Sabbath. The Son does in His ministry things that are strictly reserved for God alone. I'll give you three examples. Number one, Jesus forgives sins. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Jesus says to the the man that they carried in through the ceiling, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes there, he's, and we see here his omniscience as well in Mark 2, the scribes there, they don't say it out loud, but they're murmuring in their hearts, why does this man utter blasphemies? For God alone can forgive sins. And they were right. God alone can forgive sins because all sin is against God And only God can grant forgiveness. But Christ does not correct their theology nor their understanding of what He had said. Instead, again provoking them, He says to them, Mark 2, verse 10, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth or power on earth to forgive sins. And then He heals the man with His Word. Second way He performs the divine work 
We find this one in our text this morning. Verse 21. He has power with the Father to give life to whom He wills. Okay. Think about that. Who is the one in the Bible who reserves the right to show, have mercy upon whom He will have mercy? Romans 4.11, Paul says, speaking about Abraham, that in the presence of the God whom he believed, and then Paul describes God, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And Jesus says here, I give life to whom I will, just as the Father raises the dead. So, sovereign, free, effectual, powerful life, and Jesus says He wields it, wields it at His will. Third thing, in terms of His performing the divine work, and th- this is one, the others are significant, but this one is staggering. The Father has committed all judgment to the Son. This is kind of going outside our text this morning, I know. We'll get here next week, Lord willing. But the Father, verse 27, has committed all judgment to the Son. Jesus even says the Father judges no one. Now think about it. Who is the judge of all the earth? Who brings in the nations to give an account? It's God. And yet all judgment has been given into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Philippians 2 describes that day when every knee shall bow on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father so that all would honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Judgment Day is going to be a Trinitarian rejoicing. Beholding the three in one. As the Son is honored, the Father is honored. And as the Father is honored, the Son is honored in the Spirit. That day when the Son's voice is heard throughout all the earth, and all who have gone into the tombs rise, and they stand before Him, and He judges them with perfect equity according to their works, and Jesus sends every soul either to eternal life or eternal punishment. Every heart on Judgment Day will know that Christ is equal to the Father. The third, the third subpoint, last subpoint on this uh, uh, doctrine, Christ receives divine honor. Okay, this, I'm overlapping here, but it's worth pointing it out by itself. He receives divine honor. Okay. If there's one thing we know about God and regarding His separation, not only from sinners, but His separation from His creation. It's that God is a jealous God and He will not share His glory with another. Psalm 115.10 Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be glory. And in verse 22 here, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. To honor anything that is not God as much as we honor God is by definition idolatry. It is misplaced worship. Misplaced honor. And yet it is the Father's purpose that we honor His Son just as we honor the Father. And so that's the first way we're instructed is we're taught unambiguously the deity of Christ. That brings us to our second thing here. And forgive me, this is one of those longer titles that I just can't figure out how to shorten it, so I'll repeat it. We are instructed regarding the distinction, okay? That's a very important word. I didn't say separation, I said distinction between the Son as God and the Son as incarnate servant, okay? We're instructed here regarding the the distinction between the Son as God and the Son as incarnate servant. And what I want to do here is I want to open up something that's introduced for us here. And it's, it's something that's a very important distinction that we need to have in mind as we move along in the Gospel. Okay, So 
In one sense, I'm opening up this doctrinal point as a hermeneutical instruction doctrinal point because this text gives us a prime opportunity to, to open this up briefly. Okay? Because here, here's the issue. While our text this morning highlights the Lord Jesus' equality with the Father, His essential oneness with the Father in nature and doing the same work as the Father, having the same knowledge and the same will as the Father, we will come to passages that appear to give a different impression. So for instance, in chapter 14, Jesus will say, my Father is greater than I. Or John 20, he says, I'm ascending to your God and my God. So he refers to the Father as his, his God. Or we'll come to the Garden of Gethsemane in which the Son is submitting His will to the, the will of the Father. We'll come to passages in which Jesus is obeying His Father. So the question is, how do you affirm both of those? That the Son is equal with the Father, and yet the Son also prays and worships and obeys? Well, the answer to that is by reading the Bible correctly with the correct categories, okay? And here, here's my answer, and I'll give a quote from Augustine. Some texts, like ours this morning, describe the Father and the Son's unity and equality of substance in their divinity, okay? They, they are, the Father and the Son are not just like one another. They both together with the Spirit possess the same numerically one divine essence. And therefore, their attributes are identical, their knowledge is identical, and their glory is identical. There is not one above the other in the Trinity. So that's one kind of text, right? Ours this morning. However, other texts highlight the Son's being if we want to use the word less than the Father, they speak of His being less than the Father, not in the sense of less in deity, but because as the God-man, He has taken the form of a servant in the incarnation to accomplish our redemption. If we don't distinguish Christ as very God of very God and the intrinsic glory He shares with the Father, if we don't distinguish between that and His mediatorial role as the God-man who comes to serve not to, and not to be served, if we don't distinguish those things, we're going to run aground in our Christology. Okay? Here's, here's Augustine's quote. And this is, mind you, some 1,800 years ago. So there's nothing new under the sun. Christians always need to be warned about confusing categories. He said, quote, this has misled people who are careless about examining or keeping in view the whole range of the Scriptures. And then listen to him. And they have tried to transfer what is said of Christ Jesus as man to that substance of His which was everlasting before the Incarnation and is everlasting still. So, Augustine is saying, you can't read everything that is said of the Son in His incarnation and His humiliation for our salvation and then read that back onto the eternal relationship of the Son with the Father from eternity. Because to do that and to conflate those two is actually to gut the very Gospel of its glory. Here's why. And this is going to be my very simple application this morning. In just a moment. Philippians 2. In what does the glory of the Gospel consist? That He who was in the form of God and did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, what? That one made Himself of no reputation. And you think about that text. God makes Himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men, He humbled Himself and became obedient even to the point of the death on the cross. This is what makes the humiliation 
Christ's humiliation so incredibly gracious and the gospel so incredible. Okay. And this is where I just want to briefly turn to application. And really my application this morning is the weaving together of those two doctrinal points. The deity of Christ and also the condescension of Christ in the Incarnation as our Mediator. Here's how these two things should touch down for us, Christian. When we read of the glories of Christ, like like this text this morning, when we read of His equality with the Father, it should turn our eyes and our thoughts to the incomparable majesty of Christ. The incomparable majesty of the Son of God. That this is the One, as John tells us, that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, sitting on the throne, surrounded by the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. When we think about the Word, the Son of God, we should think that this is the One who is the great I Am who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. The One who has no beginning, will have no end, who is one with the Father and shares all the Father's attributes and the Father's glory. But, here's the thing. When we read other texts, like I mentioned that we'll come across, texts like, Father, not My will, but Your will be done. Or texts like, I'm going to My God and Your God. We're not supposed to think when we read those texts, well, Maybe He's not what I thought He was in those other texts. We're not supposed to think, like, maybe I just misinterpreted over there and I thought too much of the Son. And I thought He was greater than He actually is. No. You are perfectly correct in your interpretation over there. Rather, when we read those texts of His humiliation, it's not supposed to cause us to doubt His deity It's supposed to cause us to stand astounded and with mouth gaping, as it were, at the fact that my God, Jesus Christ, who was in the form of God, stooped that low for me. That He who has the power to give life to whom He wills came to lay down and give up His own life for me. He who always works together with His Father came as a man to obey His Father in our behalf. That He who upholds the universe by the Word of His power stretched out His arms to be crucified on a tree. That He who is the object of worship came as a worshiper. He who is the giver of the law came to be born under the law so that He might obey it as man in our stead. All for our sake and our salvation. Christian, passages like this morning remind us that the gift of Jesus Christ to the world is the single greatest act of condescension and humility and sacrifice. Believer, honor the Son. Honor the Son just as you honor the Father. That is what glorifies the Father, is when His people honor the Son. As C.T. Studd said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, what sacrifice is there that is too much for me to give for Him? Unbeliever, stand in awe of God's grace to sinners. I pray, if you're here and you're an unbeliever and you're outside of Christ, I pray that God may move and warm your heart to see how awesome His gift of grace in giving His Son for sinners is. And that your heart would be strangely warmed as you think of our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. And you think, my God whom I've sinned against and rebelled a thousand and a million times, He came, not just as a man, but as a servant, to suffer 
and to be mocked and to be persecuted and to be beaten and to die the death of a criminal and the apex of that is not the physical pain but the Father pouring out upon the Son the wrath that was deserved to be poured out on us for our sins. That's what God has done in response to to your sin and my sin. And I pray that your heart would be warmed that I need to turn from my sin therefore. And I need to come and trust this God. And I need to embrace by faith His gift of love to me by giving His Son. Unbeliever, you do not know what tomorrow may bring. You do not know what a day may bring forth. Come to Christ as God, as man, as your perfect mediator. Come to Christ by faith and experience peace with God and the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that You would cause Your people this morning to be humbled as we've hopefully not only thought about, but meditated on the beauty and the depths of our God. And Father, though there are so many things that we cannot say because it is beyond our minds to comprehend, You've revealed to us Yourself in the Scriptures. And how that undergirds the Gospel. That our salvation is not just the work of a man. But it is the work of our God in condescending to our lowest state to redeem us and to raise us to glory. Father, we thank You for Christ this morning. We thank You that He though once coming in humiliation and dying in weakness, He has raised in power and has been exalted high above every name. We thank You that because He sits enthroned and exalted in glory, we too as the people of God, as we walk now, as it were, in our humiliation, we will someday see glory and be with Him to behold His glory. Father, cause us to dwell on the names of Christ, the person of Christ, the works of Christ, the beauties of Christ, His heart of love for His people. And we do pray again, Father, for any who are here who are strangers to grace, grant them to come to a saving knowledge of Christ by faith. We pray that they would fear for their souls knowing that their sins hang over them. And as a result, Your wrath abides upon them. We pray that You, by Your Spirit, would cause them to flee for safety to Your Son. That they would honor the Son and in honoring the Son, that they would honor You, Father. Draw near to us. Bless our time of fellowship, our meal together, we pray. We pray that You would Cause us to redeem the time. We pray that we would have edifying discussions and conversations and applying Your Word. Help us to grow in Christ together today. We pray that You would bless our our time of teaching this afternoon as well. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.